0: Market yeah. okay. the okay. This is Motley Fool
1: Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is coming to you on the weekend with a special bonus mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, and especially on this Sunday, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I'm good. How was this mailbag episode?
2: I, I love mailbag.
1: I'm sorry, I did, I did spring, <laughs> I did spring this I, on but, you but, without But notice. I had no idea that we were doing <laughs> this. So <laughs> we were recording live, and I just thought we're not getting through the questions. We're running out of time. The podcast is going to really be so long before we drive people nuts, so, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave the other questions that people have, mate. We've got such great questions this week, we got a lot of them.
2: My excuse is going to be that I have not read the questions, I don't <laughs> know what the questions are, so if my answers are silly, it's that's, all your fault. That's always the fun, mate, that's the fun. <laughs> but i got to blame someone.
1: <laughs> mate, you always got to blame me, that's all right, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Should we get straight into it? Yeah, let's do Beautiful. it. Beautiful. Mate, we got a great question from Mitch. Uh, Mitch came through on Facebook, which is awesome, now... Um, I will do a quick social shout-out. We're doing a special mailbag edition. If you want to get in touch with us, if you're on Facebook, and who wouldn't be other than Doc, who's irrationally hateful of the company? Why would you be on Facebook? (laughs) You can get us on Facebook. Now, we're at The Motley Fool Australia, I think it is, on Facebook. Or I'm at Scott Phillips Money is my personal page. Um... I love you all, but I'm not going to do I do on my, my personal page. But I have a I have a business page. Um, so you get at Scott Phillips Money is where I am on Facebook. You can hit us up on Twitter, which is kind of probably the best way to do it because we get to all interact in public, which is kind of nice. There, we are at the Motley Fool AU. I'm at TMF Scott P, and Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. Or you can hit us up on Instagram if you've got some, you know, photos of sunsets or food or don't don't do that. Just, just don't do the sunsets or food. Really, seriously. Just put photos of your dogs. Not if, anyway. Dogs are fine. If you're on Instagram, because all the cool kids are these days, and so we thought we should be, not because we're cool kids, but because we know the cool kids are. And, hey, who doesn't want to look good by association? So you can get us there at, at the Motley Fool AU, or, again, I'm at TMF Scott P. So hit us up with questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, particularly if you've got nice things to say. If you don't, then, you know, keep them yourself. Um, Mitch heads up on Facebook, mate, and said, Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. You guys are legends. That must be your brother, Mitch, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. He said, I'm a fairly young investor in my mid-20s. Bastard. And the podcast has really helped my understanding. The question I have for you is around valuing a company. I was interested in what Doc was saying about peg ratios. I've done some peg ratios on some companies I'm interested in, like Treasury Wine Estates, and I'm getting a peg over 1.5. Would this be an indication that the share may be overvalued? What are some other factors that I might have missed that I should consider? Keep up the great work, guys, and full on, Mitch. That is awesome, Doc. I'm going to start as I tend to by asking you to define our terms. What the hell is the peg ratio?
2: So first of all, I'll say that I don't remember actually talking about the peg ratio, but <laughs> but but I'll take a uh, I'll take a stab at answer, uh, defining at least peg. So P- peg stands for uh, the PE of the peg stands for price to earnings.
1: Right, we, and people should know the price earnings ratio by now. What's yeah. the price earnings ratio? So
2: that's just the Share price yep. divided by earnings per share.
1: So, if my share price is 100 bucks for the Motley Fool podcast company, and we earn 10 dollars in earnings in a given year and profit, let's call it profit—that's what we call it here.
2: Where is that 10 dollars coming from? But in- oh, you yeah. know, exactly.
1: it's all the advertising and yeah. all the stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, 100 dollars <laughs> share price divided by 10 dollars of earnings yeah. is a PE of 10. Mm-hmm. And normally, all things being equal, lower is better than a higher. If I could buy a share for a cheaper PE, rather a lot higher PE, then I'm getting more earnings for my dollar. Now doesn't yeah. mean high PE companies are bad, but if you're given the choice, you buy any company cheaper. So a cheaper PE is generally speaking better than a, a higher PE, but not, not necessarily the only companies you should buy. But in any case, that, that's some some it's one version of valuation. So then that's the PE of the peg. What's the G? Yeah,
2: so G is the growth rate, and okay. I guess it's the growth rate of earnings, right? So if earnings are growing at, make up your example, um Twenty percent. Twenty percent. Then that gives us what in in this particular case. So ten divided 10, by twenty. Ten divided by twenty is 0.5. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So now you can now.
1: Start. In this case, the lower the it's, better is
2: better. Yeah. It it basically means that you are paying less um, for the underlying growth. So, so the idea right. here behind peg. So peg is a very simple metric. What the idea behind peg basically is that if if there's a if there are two companies with PE of ten.
1: Oh, this is, yeah, cool.
2: Right? Yeah. Yep. The two companies with PE of 10, yes. they, they are not necessarily the same because what you want to really look at is you want to look at which one is growing at what rate, right? So the one right. growing at 20% versus the one growing at 10%.
1: Okay.
2: Ideally, if they are both at PE of 10 and there's no other factor involved and <laughs> and, and all and else being equal, as the be, economists say, yes. All else being equal, the futures are equally yes, bright, yes, yes. then the one on PE of 10 with growth rate of 20%, which is on a peg of 0.5, yep.
1: Is better, right? So that makes sense, right? If you get a chance to buy two companies that are in theory valued on current earnings at the uh, at the same as a PE, so both hundred bucks, both ten dollars of earnings, they're both PE of ten, so yeah, they're the same company in theory. But if you knew that over in the past or ideally in the future, the Motley Fool podcast company was going to grow at twenty percent, but the um, other dodgy finance podcast company was going to go at ten percent, well, for the same price, you'd want to buy the company with the higher growth. Yeah, And that's where the PEG is useful.
2: Yeah, PEG is useful. No, the PEG is useful in that context. But the problem with the PEG is that because it's a simple measure mm-hmm. and um, uh, everybody knows the, the the growth rate of the previous year, everybody yes. knows the current PE. Yes. Um, everybody can compute this. And yes. in that sense, it kind of, it starts to fall apart because largely the issue is not, um, y- you know, if if a company has bright growth prospects, mm. then its shares will appropriately get kind of bid up, right? So in
1: theory, that should already be priced into the stock.
2: That should already be priced. I mean, it's very rarely that, you know, if there's a rare company that, you know, is under the radar completely. Like it's an, if it's a small micro cap, for example, with low liquidity that not enough people are following, then maybe... For those sort of situations, maybe you know the
1: peg can come in handy. It's pegged. Or in some questions, you may just have market irrationality, right? Like I think to, to to be fair, not every large company is equally evenly valued. We've we've all, uh, yeah. for large and small companies, the multifool, done reasonable or very well. I think we've, we're beating the market with almost all of our services by finding companies the market is mispricing. Yeah, and peg can be one way of identifying them. But to your point, to some degree, the more widely accepted a metric, and particularly using historical information. Yeah the harder it is to find really good opportunities.
2: Yeah, especially because you can run a screen, right? So most, like, you can do a peg screen on, like, you know, pretty much any broker, right? So if you can run a screen, then everybody can run a screen. So, I mean, uh, I, I think you could take the peg forward slightly by thinking about, I think you can think about the current... So, for example, a lot of companies that I look at don't even have the E. So, the PE is in <laughs> <laughs> So, you are now thinking of what the E is going to be in the future. Right, but let's say right. the company has an E, um, and therefore you have a PE, <laughs> uh, price to earnings ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the way to think about that is, you know, you might be paying a price to earnings ratio of, say, 30. That might on that might seem like that's almost double the typical average of the market speed. The market PE on average is 15, yep. 16, 17. You're paying like 30, even 32. Let's say you're paying double.
1: And I would someone would say to you, mate, why would you pay? Thirty-two times earnings. If you buy another company for sixteen times earnings, exactly.
2: But but then what you do is you you look at maybe you look at the past and and you look at the future opportunity and may, and, and maybe you look at treasury and say, well, you know, but if today's earnings is one dollar and I can see that earnings grow by thirty percent, if something is growing by thirty percent, then they typically are going to you know on average that earnings is going to what like two in two and a half years is going to double. Mm. So effectively, two years out, the P is actually fifteen. Mm -hmm. And if that rate even slows down at that point, and then it's like just 20 or even 25, it's in the next five years, it's going to again double. Mm -hmm. So in seven years from now, you're going to have like, uh, you know, a $4 of earnings. You know, in normalized terms, I'm talking right, right, about. Yes, so now, yes. now the PE has actually gone from fifteen to like seven and a half.
1: Right, <laughs> right. So which is kind of what the peg, some degree, tries to capture. Right. It's the it's, yeah. it's the, the rate at which the company grows, which makes your investment at what otherwise would be 30 times. Less. Or even think about a. I mean, I'll use Amazon, and we both own shares. But you know, at some point, at 100 bucks a share, 25 years ago, Amazon looked expensive. a thousand bucks a share looked expensive. At two thousand dollars, it looks expensive. If and when it delivers enough profit, and it may or may not. We don't know the future. Then all of a sudden, those share prices that looked historically... I mean, $100 for Amazon now looks super cheap, right? When the shares were $2,000 yep. at the time with no earnings, everyone's like, oh, it's ridiculously overpriced. How can yep. you possibly pay 100 bucks for a company with no earnings? The answer was, well, because it's big, it's growing, it's going to become more dominant. Yep. It's the study... or Not the study. It's the yep. assessment of the future that matters in investing as Warren Buffett said, if history was all that counts, the richest yeah. people would be librarians.
2: So so my, 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 I guess I'm being in a circuitous way trying to, what I'm trying to say is the PEG is useful in the sense that instead of just thinking of the G there as the previous year's growth rate, yes. what I actually like to think about is what's the kind of the growth rate that you're seeing over, say, five-year period? Love that. Annualized. Yep. Um, and, and then if you use that, that gives you a better handle. Now, like, of course, you're estimating like everything, there's no guarantees of it being correct. You have to, you know, make reasonable judgments. But if you're looking at companies, you know, a bunch of companies and then you can normalize in this sense, then you get a sense, mm-hmm. okay, you know, if I have to choose one over the other, this one is better because of these reasons. And of course, you look at all the other qualitative factors in, in addition to the quantitative factors yeah. and the qualitative factors should guide your quantitative, you right, know, future expectations. Yeah, future expectations as well.
1: Yeah. I'm I mean, going to add very quickly, mate, because you've done a wonderful job. To me, Peg does a really nice job of capturing essentially the three things that matter most in investing, right? The, the price the company's profits, and how fast it's going to grow in the future. And if you think about those three, now, not today's profits, not I mean, you have to be today's price, right? But the future growth, the future earnings, think about the business model of a company, they're the things you should be be paying up for, right? How much money am I going to get? And how quickly is that money going to grow? Now, you have to start in some cases with when is that money going to start turning up, by the way? So if you're not making money now, as Doc said, you want to look to the future and say, when am I going to start making cash and what's that worth? But the framework is a really nice way to encapsulate a good start to think about a business and, and the sort of things that are going to deliver profit, and the sort of things that are going to help that profit grow over time. Um, look, treasury is not one that you cover, Doc. I like treasury. I own treasury for full disclosure. Um, it's also a recommendation of Asset Share advisor, so I do it in my cooking. Um, I, you know, I think treasury will have a I, like you. I'm not. A, I'm not a um, I'm not a, a high, as high risk investor as you. I don't necessarily look for the same size companies or the same types of companies. But if I think about treasury looking forward. I think a truckload more people in particular in Asia in general and China in particular. We're going to heap more treasury wines. And if I'm right about that, and treasury can keep increasing prices and volumes, treasury I think is a very good investment for the long term. I'm talking like a decade plus, right? So I have no idea what happens this year, next year, or the year after. Um, but based on the, as you said, the fundamentals and the sort of future growth expectations, I think treasury will be very, very nice. So I am a shareholder. I, it is a recommendation of ours. I, don't, I didn't know the peg was over one and a half as it currently exists. The other thing I would say, by the way, mate, very few companies these days – to you, almost to your point, so back when I was first following the Motley Fool back in the late 90s, because I'm that old, I, um, uh, there, were, there were a lot of companies, well, a decent number of companies with a peg of less than one. Very, very hard these days to find companies with a peg of less than one, I would argue. I don't. I can't stop my head to think of even any that are growing earnings at a faster rate than their PE. It's, it's very, very hard to, it's hard to find. And if you do find them, then maybe they're worth it, maybe they're not. But I, I wouldn't just invest on the base of the peg.
2: Yeah, most companies that have high growth potential basically are investing everything into that growth, right? Yeah. So there and investors no e. know that,
1: right? So they're yeah. <laughs> well, as they know it, e, but they're also investors bidding up the price to the point where you don't get yeah. that sort of that sort of number. You very rarely get yeah. under one for that reason. Yeah. But the next question comes from Stephen Sheldon on Twitter. He says, "Hi guys, love the show." In brackets, of course, I don't know what he means. Uh, he says, "Can you tell me what's the best way for an investor to consider the likely impacts of global warming when selecting stocks?" I know this is a big macro question. It is, but it seems pretty important. I think we can agree on that one too, Doc. How should Stephen and our fellow listeners, his fellow listeners, consider the impacts of global warming when buying stocks?
2: Um, So, is uh, I'm a bit actually uh, confused in the sense, or uh, you know, is is this a question about investing in um, stocks that are green, or is it a question of our investing impacting uh, global warming?
1: If I was a betting man, I would say Stephen is saying, global warming is going to happen or is happening. If I own shares in BHP or Woolworths or Telstra or Elmo software, how should I factor global warming into my investment thesis for the companies I either own or might buy?
2: Right, right. Okay. Um, This this, this is a hard one in the sense that I actually don't personally at least invest – on on the well okay i I should retract that so i I do invest based on themes like for example like you know if global warming is becoming important therefore i think sustainable something is important so therefore if i want to invest in sustainable um -hmm. you know energy then i might find some investments in that that area because i think that's going to have a larger and larger share over time Mm -hmm. right so that's one way to do it um largely though I mean maybe bottom up is better than in than thematic because in thematic the issue with thematic is um one might get too caught up with the thematics and then forget about the individual company because ultimately <laughs> um more than in investing I think that the the bottom up uh, part of looking at the company looking at what you know what its prospects are mm. relative to you know where the share price is today and where the share price therefore can be in the future I think is what matters more Um, sometimes thematics like, you know, can help. Now, if you think, for example, that, um, you know, if you could predict that artificial intelligence is going to become very important, then you invest in that theme. But then again, there too, how do you find the winners in that particular theme? So it it kind of becomes hard. Uh, That said, I mean... If global warming is uh, is going to become a central theme, then I think you can use that to actually decide what not to invest in. I think that becomes an easier problem. So, so if you think that a large number of people are uh, or a large number of governments are going to actually, you know, uh, price put a tax on, say, coal, Mm. then maybe not being in coal stocks could be one way of, um, you know, playing it, right? So, right. you know, you decide what not to do rather than decide what to do. And I think sometimes that um, maybe is, is easier, mm. uh, you know, exclusion versus inclusion.
1: Yeah, right. Well, it's, a, it's Warren Buffett's famous two hard pile, right? He, he just, he says he's got a very large two hard pile. If he simply looks at something and goes, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I have an answer here. I don't know the answer, rather than feeling like as many investors do, particularly professional investors like us, and we don't, but our our peers in the industry kind of feel like they have to have an answer for everything, right? If someone calls and says, hey, what do you think about company X? You kind of, you know, it's 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 reputationally difficult to say, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and at some point, you know, people say, well, hang on, what am I paying you for if you don't know stuff? Um, we are in the very fortunate position of having a business that is basically built around our best ideas, not a view on everything. Um, and so we, we have opinions on stuff from time to time. Do we have an investable opinion on something with enough certainty to say to our members, you should follow this view? Often not. So as you say, sometimes it's too hard piles to pile. It's a great way to go. Any more thoughts on global warming investing, mate?
2: No, global warming is important. But other than that, I don't know
1: much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts, Stephen. I will heartily endorse Stocks. You're just simply avoiding stuff you don't know about. I think that's a perfectly great way to do it. What I would be a little bit mindful of is um, also taking an opportunity for uh, some some. Uh, contrarian thinking when it comes to this. So, for example, um, I mean, I've ranted about ethical investing. I wouldn't do that necessarily, at least not in the way that many people practice it because I don't think there's value there. Um, that being said, though, one of the things to think about, for example, people say, well, insurance companies are going to go broke because you know payouts are going to get higher as global warming impacts, climate change impacts, more catastrophes, more tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, whatever, bushfires. That's all true with the exception of thinking about how those risks are priced. Now, if you said to someone, I've got a 20-year Insurance policy, which pays at any point over the next 20 years based on cyclones, hurricanes, bushfires, I'm going to say, well, I'm getting well away from that one. If you're an insurer, though, and you get to reset your premiums every year, as long as the actuaries in the insurance company are actually factoring in the increased risk and charging higher premiums as a result, there is no reason why you shouldn't potentially... Not saying you should. No reason why you shouldn't invest in, say, insurers, for example. Right? As long as it's like it's like banks with credit risk. It doesn't matter that some people don't pay their pay their loans off. Banks expect that. Credit cards the same. Payday lenders the same for what it's worth. Thirty percent of payday lending clients don't pay their don't pay their debts back. That's not a problem as long as the rest of the business is priced accordingly, so that the risks that don't or do come to pass are more than covered by the risks that don't come to pass. That's why we have pooled insurance. That's the very idea. If I have a prang on the way home and Doc doesn't, then as long as enough people don't have pranks, my costs are covered in the insurance company is more than fine. If they're pricing in those short-term risks appropriately, you don't need to worry about it. So, you know, one, counterintuitively, I don't think you should necessarily avoid insurance. I would be a little bit careful, as doctors with natural resource companies, particularly energy. Um, the, the view by those who know these things is that if and when governments finally get around to taking meaningful action on climate change, and I don't mean that in a political sense, but I expect they will at some point, then... A lot of coal companies will effectively have assets that are, in the lingo, stranded assets. In other words, if we stop burning so much coal because it's bad for the environment, if that is, if that comes to pass, I think it probably will. Again, not as a political view, but simply as a pragmatic one. Um, then if you own a, a coal mine with a whole lot of coal on the ground, and there's a very good chance you won't ever get it out of the ground, then you want to think very carefully about how much you pay for that company, even if you own the company shares itself, as Doc says. So. Taxes are one. Literally, is it ever going to be burnt or taken out of the ground and sold is, is a real question. I mean, if it is and the scientists are right, if every coal mine in operation now takes all the coal out of the ground that it has, then the planet will warm by five, six, seven degrees and we're all toast. So if the science is right and there's no restriction, then we're in, we've got bigger issues of whether or not your coal company loses value. So I'll just, I'll just throw it out there to be a little bit careful. And again, as Doc says, use the too hard pile liberally.
0: Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, Liam sent us a question on Facebook as well. He says, Hey, Scott and Doc, loving the potty. Started listening a couple of months back now. I'm 22. Jeez, you young blokes. Stop rubbing your face in it, will you? I mean, Doc's a young bloke, but I'm getting on a bit. And I, you know. Anyway. I'm 22. Started, started full-time working, taking a real shine to investing. Good man, Liam. I have no background in finance or stocks, but I understand the benefits, and I'm putting a lot of time into educating myself. Man, he's on fire! My question is: I'm trying to encourage my mates to get into investing, however, I'm not educated or convincing enough to win the majority of them over. Have you two done a podcast, or have simply explained have a simply explained resource? Sorry, on why the stock market is the best option. Especially at a young age, or would you be willing to make a money hack episode or even a segment in a podcast simply explaining the benefits in layman's terms so I can refer my friends to listen to. Fool on, he says. How good's that? That is pretty awesome. I think we'll take that a year up. That's
2: a really good idea.
1: Might, yeah. I don't know if we'll do we'll have a think about that. So look, I want to read that because it was some, a question that we got. We don't really have an answer for it just now. But we'll do some version of something, Lim. Hold us to it. If we don't do it the next couple of weeks, make sure you remind us. Um, look, it's hard. You know, we do a podcast for a general audience, and so we want to make sure our our commentary is as broad as possible. Part of the problem, honestly, I had a question from another another correspondent who was asking me about you know whether we had a particular resource for millennials, right? And the, the problem, unfortunately, is that most of our investing advice isn't age-specific. Like, you know, if you're 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, we don't have a different way for you to invest because we only know one way to invest, right? And so it's kind of, even though your circumstances might be different, we kind of can't, there's no magic bullet say, oh, if you're 25, then you should be either taking a hit more or a hit less risk, or 65, you should be, you know, don't take our advice, day trade instead. I mean, there, there is no kind of plan B when it comes to what we think is best for investing. As long as you have five plus years, all of our investing is designed with that sort of time frame in, in mind. So there is no specific advice for millennials, but I think we can do, hopefully, a decent job in trying to show the millennials the value of investing and why it's worth doing. What do you reckon, Doc?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's all a fair point. I'll just say it one thing to Liam. And this, maybe you can tell this to your friends. Uh, the, what I tell people is that the stock market is the single best way to participate in the success of hum, human ingenuity. Right. So go. the human human race basically makes progress, and the best way you can, you know, you can partake in that, pro, you know, progress and the wealth that that progress creates is actually via the stock market.
1: I like that. And I'm going to give my own page a, pl- <laughs> a plug because, hey, if we give ourselves a plug, Matt, what are we doing here? Um, go to Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. So facebook.com slash Money. Um, I only say that because it just so happens and it wasn't related, but it ends up nicely. I, I, posted a, I posted a post. I put up a post on the 1st of October if you're looking for it. It's now the 3rd or 4th as we record this. And I've dropped in there a Vanguard index chart from 2019. So every 33rd of June every year, they update their 30-year index chart. And if you want to tell your mates something, tell them this. If they put $1,000 away 30 years ago, they'd now have $14,634. If they put $10,000 away 30 years ago, and I admit, admittedly, you weren't alive and all your mates, that would have turned into $146,000. Now, if they can't get excited about turning $10,000 into one hundred and forty-six dollars well, mate, you got bigger issues. And you probably should find better, better mates. But I'm sure your mates are wonderful blokes. Um, so all I would say is, look, that that is the value of compounding. Jump on there, show them that chart. The chart is really, really impressive. It shows you the value of, and that's just investing in an ETF, right? If you can actually beat the market, you're even better. If you'd have bought a hypothetical uh, ASX 200 ETF 30 years ago and done nothing, literally not added another dollar, which you should, by the way, if you hadn't, 10 grand becomes 146,000 dollars. If you can't get excited about that, then I don't know. I think I'll probably give up. Yeah. But good, Matt, we will do something on that. But, and, and good on you for getting your mates involved, mate. More importantly, you are going to, well, the other thing is, mate. Maybe, maybe to the extent you're happy to share some stuff with your mates, share it with your experience as you go. If they can see you making some cash, that's probably a really nice way. No, no one likes your mates getting rich when you're not. That actually might be the most effective way to do it, I reckon, Doc. Yeah, I think so. All right, next question. We got a question from Matt. Matt says, hi, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Listen religiously. You must be Father Doc, and I'm Father Scott. It looks like that. Thank, thank you for listening, my son. Have we, we offended anyone? Probably. If you're religious, at the,
2: at you the, really, I at I the podcast church, we are
1: <laughs> the Church of the Holy Podcast. Yep. I have i to stop. I have a question I've been thinking about for some time, and that's on the impact of compulsory super on the share market. Now, this one came via email, and when Aaron shared this one with us, I frankly was scared to ask the question because Doc hasn't mentioned. So his thoughts on this, and this might get ugly. He says, says, Every month there is new money coming into the investment market on back of compulsory super, a good chunk of which ends up in Aussie equities. Sure, there's money coming out of the market too from those that have retired, but I'm assuming there's more money coming in than going out through reinvesting dividends, a growing population, wages, growth, etc. I've read a lot of Australians retiring now over time with not enough super, which would limit how much could get taken out. So with all this money going in, just thinking about supply and demand, Do you think there is an underlying pressure for share prices generally to get more expensive over time? And if so, how much of an influence is it? I guess the clue might be in long-term historical PEs from before Compulsory Super, but I don't have access to reliable data. Lastly, if all this money is flowing into the market and has some bearing on values, what do you think the outlook will be? We have an aging population, and therefore we could expect this dynamic to change over time as the mix moves to more retirees pulling money out of the market. Thanks for any of your thoughts, Matt. Now, Matt sent this email in, Doc. Around the same time as you were, well, I think I don't think rant is a pejorative. I think I think rant is a, is a is a compliment because I do it regularly. So I'll, I'll compliment what you by saying. You had a rant about the, the impact of super. I imagine you have some thoughts on Matt's question.
2: Yes, I think this is a brilliant question. I should, uh, you know, I love this question, Matt. Um, we were actually talking about this. We uh, were. Um, yeah, so I actually have very similar thoughts on this? Like, you know, our, our, our super sector is about, what, $2.7 trillion, right?
1: Give it to Fourth take. largest retirement pool in the world.
2: Yeah, now that's a great thing, but then when you look at the ASX, the ASX is actually, total market capitalization is around $1.7 trillion. Pretty big. Yes. Now, if you, if you go down the the whole of, of the rabbit hole of what is investable and what is not investable mm-hmm. and what is liquid enough, you actually narrow the ASX down quite quickly to maybe the top three, four hundred, five hundred companies, mm-hmm. right? That makes the market cap of that part, you know, maybe it's like it'll come down to maybe something like 1.4, 1.5 billion. Most of the market cap is there anyways, right? Not in this in the smaller end of the town. Right. Now as more money comes in, I think there is this I think there's you know, I have no proof of this, but, uh, you know, this is, again, a theory I've made up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I think this, somebody could dig into this. Uh, I think there's a real effect because many super funds, and, you know, if you if your money goes into super, your employer puts your money into super, the money goes into, you know, some fund that you're with, yep. the, the fund basically says, well, you know, pick between aggressive, growth, moderate, or, or you know, balanced. just cash, balanced, yep. you know.
1: And that's the a, default is balance, and around about forty-eight percent, I think, of balance goes to Australian equities as a matter of averages.
2: Exactly. So now I think that's where it gets interesting. That we have all this money that goes in, and let's say thirty or forty percent, you know, in some cases maybe fifty percent is going into Australian equities. And Australian equities overall are actually pretty, as as a as a piece of the global equities market, is relatively small. It's like two or three percent, right? right? So we have a large pool of money coming via voluntary. Or compulsory super mm-hmm. that in a way is chasing the same small pot, right?
1: And so effectively, you're saying Matt's pretty much right when he says, based on the supply and demand, lots of cash, lots of supply in this case, so lots of demand yeah. in this case, only a limited amount of supply. Economics tells me that should push prices up.
2: Yeah, so that, that's the thing. And I think, you know, part of the, the I think the, uh, if I have to use the word floor, the issue here might be the design, but design by default. Uh, has got a significant chunk of capital flowing into ASX equities, Mm. which, you know, when you consider the size of the market... Seems a bit disproportionate, and then you and and if voluntary super actually are uh, not keeps saying voluntary, it's like you know, compulsory. <laughs> yep. And if compulsory super actually increases, it, you know, there was that proposal sometime back of it going up to like twelve percent and so on. And it
1: bloody well should, but I won't rant about no, that now.
2: No, I'm not going to rant about stuff. <laughs> but but, 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 but I'm, not, you know, I'm not even going to this in the you know, politics of that uh, and so on. You Assume know, it and, does. And, and yeah, like and, and I think super compulsory super is in a way a good thing, right? Because it's a way of you know creating a safety net around the society, which is actually overall a good thing. I think the super system is actually a good thing but i think this is a side effect of how the funds are moving in which is which is causing asset price in in some sense it's, it's a contributor i wouldn't say it's the only contributor the low rates and so on right. are also contributors to asset price but this is a definite in my mind at least a contributor
1: it's the old politician's line of it puts upward pressure on prices right
2: yeah it puts it upward pressure so therefore I think the bigger risk in my mind is that if at some point people start thinking, well, you know, we should maybe tweak these, uh, you know, from 40% it should be 20% right. or, you know, 40% to 30%. That, uh, you know, it's again, these things are hard to know. The, in, in general, as I, as I like to say, that there are, you know, there are quality companies which would by many measures appear expensive, Mm -hmm. but they're expensive (laughs) largely because they're quality companies and there's funds chasing them and, and, you know, and, and, and it's, 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 you know, you can't really apply. The the problem here would be that, you know, do you say that you're not going to invest in them because they're quality companies and they look expensive Mm. because they might be more expensive in the future. So this is a little bit of a, um, you know, supply-demand issue. I think that's definitely at play, which which I think a lot of investors, especially if they come from outside, don't see. now. I think yeah, okay. at some point, if the market becomes big enough, liquid enough, and I think there's another effect at play, that many of the companies are small, are are big, but not big enough, for example, for shorting to be useful, right? Okay. So, if, so therefore, there's not going to be any global hedge fund that's going to come and short a, you know, million market cap company or a $2 billion market cap company because there's not enough money to be made.
1: Good, I had shortest.
2: Yeah, so I think (laughs) all of those combinations, I think, result in this uh, interesting dynamic. And, Mm. And as an investor, I think it's good to know what dynamic is. Potentially at play. I say potentially because I have no proof that that's right, the dynamic. Right. The, the, but anyways, yeah, I, I kind of agree with Matt's thought.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree in that as well. I think you know the upward pressure, it's, it's, it's almost inevitable, right? The, the rate of addition to our equity markets is simply higher than it would otherwise be by definition, right? If we didn't have compulsory super, it wouldn't happen. Now, some of that would happen because some people would, would, would save voluntarily, and that's always good. We're big fans of that. Uh, but the extent of that gain, I don't think it's fair. I don't think we should assume or would assume that Australia would save 10 percent of its salary <laughs> arbitrarily without super. So that's definitely the case. It also, by the way, has an impact on property, and so we should think about commercial property here. I I think it's less impactful than maybe some might. Um, if you think about the average rental yields of property. Um, commercial property we're talking about so I'd leave house price alone because it's a whole different question but commercial property there's no sense that that necessarily has increased meaningfully over time we know that somewhere around 10 or 20% of super goes to property um, almost all that commercial in some form whether that's retail commercial industrial Uh, And there's no sense that that's necessarily pushed that up meaningfully, at least to unrealistic levels. So I don't know that it's as big as it might otherwise be, but it's almost certainly more than would have otherwise been the case without Super. I think that's an unquestioned reality. Simply, we know that Australians as a whole wouldn't have put that much money aside. So it must, by definition, push things up. I think that your point, Matt, I've said this to Doc, and Doc, I don't know if you have a view, but... I think you're right, Matt, but I also think that's got probably 20 or 30 years to run. Um, As you said, people retiring now haven't had a full career worth of super, so they simply don't have the sorts of amounts that they would have otherwise had. So there's more money going into super than coming out now. That really won't effectively equalize until people who started working in 1993 when super was introduced. So you turned 18 that year, and your first paycheck you got super for, and you got it all through your career, that's the first time that'll be kind of equalized. After that, then you've got the increase Doc's already talking about. There were increases from 3% to 9 then 95 hopefully 12 over time. So again, that's a second kind of wave, if you like. Think about those kind of waves crashing on the beach. Um, we don't really hit kind of like for like, really, until we max out that contribution percentage. And that probably is still, I don't know, well, it's not going to happen anytime soon. The, the current government don't seem too keen. Eventually, it'll happen, I hope. Um, but it might be 5 or 6, 10 years till we get to 12 And so you think about, again, 40 years worth of that, up from nine, up from six, up from three, there's still a decent way to go. So does it make the market more expensive? Yes. Is it likely to, at any point, be a net negative? I think to Doc's point, the only time it will be is if Australian asset managers rebalance the way they invest their portfolio cash. Um, Otherwise, I don't expect it to be a net drag on the market anytime soon.
0: Modly Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All
1: right, let's move on. we got another question from another Matt. Matt says, Hi, Scott and Nunyabarn. Thanks for the podcast. I listen weekly. <laughs> I might have just accidentally hit the down button, lost the entire thing. I'm going to have to scroll up. How's this for this? People wouldn't believe we do this live, would they? No, no. He says, "I listen weekly, and you have opened my eyes and ears up to a number of other excellent podcasts from the Motley Fool U.S." I've been investing for a few. Thanks, Matt. By the way, I've been investing for a few years using a number of full services, and I've also started investing directly in U.S. stocks in January of this year. My question relates to tracking dividends from U.S. companies. Are you ready? In Australia, I get distribution statements emailed to me, and at tax time, I can log into the share registry that manages the companies I own to see exact dividend payment and franking credit details. I don't seem to be receiving dividend statements from my U.S. investments. However, I've definitely received cash dividends from U.S. into my share trading account. Is there a similar setup with U.S. stocks? Should I expect to receive dividend statements? Are there share registries that manage U.S. stocks? What is the easiest way to track down these payment details for my tax return? With Aussie dividend statements, I can usually see the share registry details. How do I find the registry if I don't have a dividend statement for the U.S.? He then says, I also note there are stocks sold over the counter, in air quotes, so over the counter is a type of trading in the US, like Tencent Holdings and Dassault Systems that have been recommendations of some US Motley Fool services. My broker does not allow these to be purchased. Can you suggest an online broker that does? Thanks for any guidance or suggestions you can provide. Now, Matt, hopefully between you sending this question and hearing this podcast, you've heard our last podcast where we talked a little bit about the way US stocks are held The simple answer is you won't get a statement from your registry because they don't exist. There is no chess in the US, the computerized holding something something system that we have in Australia. Um, The brokers hold all that and your dividend transactions from your brokerage statement are the best way to get those. Most brokers allow you to simply run a tax report or just a state transactions report. It's what I do from the tax year. Um, that I'm looking at. You just put two dates in and they send you a report of all the transactions over that period of time. There's no franking credits, unfortunately, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, so that's just a very, very simple way I do it. Doc, your thoughts on tracking dividend payments from U.S. companies?
2: Yeah, I do exactly what you said. So basically, like I use Charles Schwab. On Charles Schwab, you can basically get a list of transactions based on transaction types, whether mm-hmm. they are trades or right. dividends interest or, or yep, interests yep, yep. or fees and whatnot. So yep. you basically just get that, uh, put it into a spreadsheet, then you basically have to convert it to... Um, the Australian dollar, which is a bit of work, but it's very easy now. You take any spreadsheet, all of them have um, historical information about um, currency, so you can actually convert it on the data transaction to the um, to, to 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 the Aussie dollar equivalent yep, that And simple. there are other ways in which you can do it. You can use monthly and so on, as long as you're consistent. I think, you know, again, talk to your um, accountant mm-hmm. is what I would say. Um, that's that. You could use, uh, you use that. I don't use it. Uh, something like ShareSite, for example. Correct. Um, and they can track everything for you um, and they can produce a report for you. So that's another.
1: Cost money, not cheap, but to my mind, well and truly worth it.
2: That's another way of doing it. Um, yeah, those are the two two ways. Mm-hmm. And to answer the last part about over-the-counter stocks, um, so the OTCs, you could buy them pretty much with any U.S. broker. If you have, like, if you're trading U.S. stocks and you're paying like twenty bucks or fifty bucks for trading them, there's no reason to do that. You know, use something like Charles Schwab um, to. You know, effectively pay now zero. Yep. <laughs> so, and and then they would allow you to trade the uh, the OTCs. The OTCs are actually in uh, an, an interesting class because for many some brokers actually do not allow you to trade them. Some brokers actually charge you a lot more to trade them, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're with a U.S. native broker. They um, they're not really treated as equivalent to any other stock, so that that is that's a that's a good point, and I've seen that happen with some other trading platforms. Yep.
1: Extra levels of complexity with each one. Uh, if you're happy with Nab Trade and you're making really 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 small numbers of transactions, maybe stay with them. Doc and I would both say probably do yourself a favor, save some cash, go and find a US broker, ideally one that does OTC. Um, and again, just be careful there. You may not even want to do the OTC if it's again too high, depending to which broker you choose. You never want to have your universe reduced, um, but you can probably get away nicely without trading OTC if it comes to it.
0: Get more Motley full money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple
1: M. I had a question from David Newen who says, Hi Scott, I'm a Motley full subscriber across many services. I was an avid listener of your podcast with Doc. Is actually, I'm currently listening to the Sunday Mailbag edition while going to work. Hopefully it wasn't working on a Sunday. Hopefully he was listening to it the following Monday. I've had a lingering question I've been meaning to ask. I have a part of my portfolio in ETFs as I don't have a lot of time to actively invest. However, I've purchased them, sorry, through Bell Direct, and the fees are killing me. I want to regularly invest and take advantage of dollar cost averaging. Good man, but the fees erode my investments. Most of my ETFs are with Vanguard and BlackRock, and direct minimum investments can be in the range of twenty-five to fifty k, which is more than I want to put in one ETF. Now, when he says direct investment, he means you can actually invest off market sending money to those guys, which is more that I want to invest in one ETF. Hence, the reason I go through Bell Direct. Any thoughts on how I can regularly invest into the ETFs, but without paying the exorbitant fees? Now, I asked him just as a follow-up. I said, look, you know how are you doing? What are you doing? He said, look, I currently pay 15 bucks per transaction across eight ETFs. That's 120 bucks in fees. I only invest every couple of months to cut back in fees, but it's still too high. Any thoughts? Appreciated. And what I sort said, look, what, you know, what ETFs are there? He said, i probably invest in that. Vanguard International, Australian shares, Magellan Global Equities, a whole lot of other bits and pieces. So, Doc, that's a lot to pay. How would you solve the ETF transaction fee brokerage problem?
2: Oh, I mean, if you're just investing in certain ETFs, like if you talked about this, maybe, um, you know, so like something like uh, the Comeback, uh, the Pocket app, yes. It could be a you know raise comeback pocket app they would reduce your cost mm-hmm. if you're just investing in etFs and um, not investing in direct shares I think those would be the mm-hmm. probably the better platform in terms of um, getting in with lower dollar yep. investments at any you could basically dollar cost average yes. at one time that that's I think number one the other other alternative is to basically. Bundle money, so basically, instead of you know going smaller amounts, you try to increase the amount and therefore reduce the f- impact of fees. Um, frankly, I mean, at fifteen bucks, that's pretty competitive in uh, in Australia. Um, the other option might be you can look at something like you know uh, Saxo Bank. Uh, they they would uh, they would give you what six ninety nine I think for Australian trades, including the ETFs. Anything. Um, they have an asset management fee or custodian fee, but they don't charge a custodian fee on ASX stocks. (laughs) So if you're buying... It's a
1: decent asset management fee though, right?
2: No, but you're not paying anything. If you're buying the stocks of uh, the ASX,
1: oh right, I can open the management fee.
2: There's no no, ah, so there's right. no custodian fee. The custodian right. fee is for non-ASX. Yeah,
1: but the asset management fee though?
2: No, no, there's no. So there's right. only custodian fee. Custodian fee is off the total assets, but oh, right. Uh, right, which is which is point one two percent, which is pretty, which can actually add up. Yep. But it's not they 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 exclude ASX stocks out right. of it. So if the EAT, okay. ETFs are on on the ASX, then you're fine. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I mean, that might be another platform which is half the price of okay. this one. Yep. Um, or what else you could do? I mean, if you're just investing in, uh, so those. Would be, I mean, there's another way to do this. Would be to, you know, you actually could open an account with Charles Schwab and then invest in an Australian ETF <laughs> via them, because <laughs> because 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 most of the vanguards ETFs are actually available globally right, right so
1: right, right, right. So, the, so you buy an australian uh, an ASX 200 etf on the new york stock exchange for example
2: yeah i mean that, you know that's actually where it's probably <laughs> primarily listed and right, it's secondary right, right. listed here already you know it's duplicated yeah, somehow sure, sure. so i mean that's another way you could get zero dollars if you want to but then you of right. course you're taking the overhead of uh, the exchange rate right like
1: the only thing i'd be Careful of there is, I'm not sure whether franking credits would go straight through a US account. They may not treat them the same. Yeah, you would not get the franking credits. So, just really be careful, yeah, there, mate. yeah, you
2: would not get the franking credits. So that, that is the downside there. Uh, again, depends on the mix, but yep. those are the things I can think of on the top of my head.
1: No, mate, that, they're great answers. David, a couple of thoughts from me, mate. I love the fact you're using ETFs to invest. I think that's great. I would question, and again, this is not specific investment advice to you personally, I would question whether anyone needs eight individual ETFs to get broad market diversification. Um, I applaud the fact you want to try and do it. You, you've got a range of them there. I would, for most people, suggest that you can get almost all of the same type of kind of net outcome with about three or four ETFs. So you may want to consider just rationalising that a little bit as one thing you can do. The other thought is, you do, I love the fact you do, you're dollar cost averaging monthly. That is a spectacularly great idea. Um, but I would maybe think about just dialing that back a touch. I don't think you need to invest in everything every month. Um, when we talk about dollar cost averaging, we talking about adding money to the market every month or every fortnight or every couple of months when you can, um, and we absolutely think you should keep doing that. But neither Doc nor I nor almost anybody would invest arbitrarily in every stock they owned every month. Um, and so while it's a great kind of concept to do, given the fees, as you say, are way too high, I think you can afford a dollar cost average into the market with one or two or three or four of those ETFs in a given period of time, rather than feeling like you have to add to all of them all at the same time. Um again, the reality of dollar cost averaging is you're going to buy at roughly average prices through the period. And you know you buy one this month, another one next month, rather than both this month and both next month. Over time, that also will average itself reasonably out. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel obliged to add to every ETF every month. I would imagine if you could give yourself maybe something like cut back from eight to four, five ETFs, maybe if you feel good about it, um, and you add to one or two a month, that's going to probably drop your fees by about three quarters just by doing that alone, even without changing brokers or doing something differently. So try that. The last thing I would say is if you do want to direct invest, and we probably would suggest you're best off not doing doing it, an asset listed ETF because it gives you much more liquidity and access, but you can normally add, once you've started a position in an off-market ETF or off-market fund, it's not ETF by definition, you can add to that, I think, reasonably... Inexpensively and at reasonably low amounts of incremental investing. So the upfront, the upfront amount, you might have to put a decent amount of money up front. You're going add to that reasonably cheaply. So that might be another option for you. Yeah,
2: you know, Looking at this list, there's a decent amount of overlap in terms of what they right, hold, right? right? So Vanguard International, for example, would have some overlap with… Um,
1: Vanguard uh, Global Equities. Yeah, yeah.
2: iShares, S&P, and right, so on and so, right, so right, forth. Right. So that might be uh, – There's a, what you, the point you made about maybe reducing… Yep. The, the total makes sense or so something to think about
1: I, you know if if people were asking me about the broadest possible diversification frankly you could probably get almost all of that outcome I mean there's different weightings if you own different different ETFs, of course but you can simply own VAS which is the Vanguard Australian ETF and then VGS which is the Vanguard Developed World Ex-Australia that's pretty much the entire developed world, there, right? But both, both both those together, you get you get effectively the Western world, um, which is most of what you're already investing in with other ETFs as well. Some have different ways, different products. And again, if you're happy with that, by all means, go for it. We're not trying to talk you out of it. But I'm not sure you need for diversification purposes, or even for for investing purposes, eight different ETFs. I reckon you can get away with probably half that number, and then trade only one or two of them a month rather than all of them. Uh, you'll find your your brokerage fees drop by about seventy five percent, and I dare say over the fullness of time the return you get from that portfolio will be largely indistinguishable from what you would have delivered if you'd invested in all eight every single month. Fair to say, Doc? Yes. Mate. That's it. We can have the rest of our Sunday back.
2: Awesome. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. It's the, the, also the,
1: Friday afternoon here, but yeah. you know we're pretending it's Sunday. Cause- Hopefully that's, Well, of course, this doesn't hit the podcast airwaves till Monday. We're going to look silly anyway. So, well, look, I'm taking a decent degree of faith in our wonderful team here at Triple M who do all our production for us. Um, they are wonderful people and we're very, very happy and lucky to have them. Uh, so, I hope you've enjoyed our Foolish Mailbag bonus episode. We went to this super regularly, I don't expect. We just had so many great questions and, frankly, I didn't want to leave any on the table. I want to make sure our, our wonderful, loyal listeners had a chance to hear their questions answered and hopefully, for you, if you didn't send a question through, well, firstly, maybe you will. Secondly, I'm sure you benefit a lot too from hearing about the questions that other people have so that's it don't forget you can and you should subscribe hopefully you already are if you're hearing this on a sunday but if you're not please do subscribe hit the the subscribe button on your podcast app if you're listening to this on the web jump onto itunes jump onto your favorite android podcast app if you don't have one itunes comes native which is awesome so that's the podcast app on the iPhone is wonderful. Um, there's plenty of Android ones. There's, there's a native Google podcast. It's not great because you can't download automatically. Google kind of thinks we're all in the US and we get free unlimited data. We don't hear, so you're better off downloading on Wi-Fi. Um, jump onto, I use Pocket Casts. There's a heap out there, so grab one of those. And, of course, when you finish listening, give us a rating because we're vain and egocentric people and we like to feel like we're doing a good job. Is that right, Tom?
2: It sounds absolutely like us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Make sure you go to get to some extra Foolish goodness, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's special bonus mailbag episode of Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on.